Chapter 25 from Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, by John Hay and John George Nicolay. This is a LibriVox recording. LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, Chapter 25. Civil war, though possible, did not at the moment seem imminent or necessary. Lincoln had declared in his inaugural that he would not begin it. Jefferson Davis had written in his instructions to the commissioners that he did not desire it. This threw the immediate contest back upon the secondary question, the control and adhesion of the border slave states, and of these Virginia was the chief subject of solicitude. The condition of Virginia had become anomalous. It was little understood by the North and still less by her own citizens. She retained all the ideal sentiment growing out of her early devotion to and sacrifices for the Union, but it was warped by her coarser and stronger material interest in slavery. She still deemed she was the mother of presidents, whereas she had degenerated into being like other border states, the mother of slave breeders and of an annual crop of black-skinned human chattels to be sold to the cotton, rice, and sugar planters of her neighboring commonwealths. She thought herself the leader of the South, whereas she was only a dependent of the Gulf states. She yet believed herself the teacher of original statesmanship, whereas she had become the unreasoning follower of Calhoun's disciples, the Ruffins, the Rets, and the Yanceys of the ultra-South. The political demoralization of Virginia was completed by the John Brown raid. From that time she dragged her anchors of state. Her faith in both constitution and liberty was gone. The true lesson of that affair was indeed the very reverse. The overwhelming popular sentiment of the North denounced the outrage. The national arms defended Virginia and suppressed the invasion. The state vindicated her local authority by hanging the captured offenders. Thus public opinion, federal power, and state right united in a precedent amounting of itself to an absolute guarantee, but which might have been easily crystallized into statute or even constitutional law. Sagacious statesmanship would have plucked this flower of safety. On the contrary, her blind partisanship spurned the opportunity, distrusted government, and sought refuge in force. Her then-governor confesses that from that period we began to prepare for the worst. We looked carefully to the state armory, and whilst we had the selection of the state quota of arms, we were particular to take field ordnance instead of altered muskets. And when we left the gubernatorial chair, there was in the state armory at Richmond 85,000 stands of infantry arms and 130 field pieces of artillery, besides $30,000 worth of new revolving arms purchased from Colt. Our decided opinion was that a preparation of the southern states in full panoply of arms and prompt action would have prevented civil war. Many strong external signs indicated the persistent adherence of Virginia to the Union. Her legislature refused the proposition of South Carolina for a conference of the southern states, made in the winter of 1859-60. 
In the presidential election, her citizens voted by a slight plurality for Bell and Everett, and their platform of the Union, the Constitution, and the enforcement of the laws, while the votes cast for Douglas after his strong coercion declaration at Norfolk and the votes cast for Lincoln added to the Bell and Everett vote appeared to indicate a decided Union preponderance. Notwithstanding these manifestations of allegiance, public sentiment took on a tone and a determination which, paradoxical as it may seem, was rebellion in guise of loyalty. It is perhaps best illustrated by the declaration of ex-Governor Wise that he meant to fight in the Union, not out of it. To the nation at large, the phrase had a pretty and patriotic sound, but when explained to be a determination to fight the federal government in the Union, it became as rank treason as secession itself. However counterfeit logic or mental reservations concealed it, the underlying feeling was to fight, no matter whom and little matter how, for the protection of slavery and slave property. In this spirit, Virginia continued her military preparations. To this end, half a million dollars was voted in the winter of 1859-60 and a million more in that of 1860-61. Commissioners were appointed to purchase arms, companies were raised, officers appointed, regiments organized, camps of instruction formed. It was one of these that Floyd sent Hardy to inspect and drill in November 1860. Before the end of January, this appeal to military strength by Virginia was paraded in the United States Senate as a menace to extort a compromise and constitutional guarantees for slavery. Nor did the threat seem an empty one. The state professed to have an actual army of 62 troops of cavalry, numbering 2,547 men, 14 companies of artillery, numbering 820 men, and 149 companies of infantry, numbering 7,180 men. All these were uniformed and armed, while 6,000 men additional were formed into companies, ready to have arms put into their hands. Governor Letcher, the successor of Wise, had begun his administration with the announced belief that disunion was not only a possible but a highly probable event. The defeat of his favorite Douglas and the success of Lincoln served, therefore, as a pretended justification of his fears, if not an actual stimulant of his hopes. The presidential election was scarcely over when he called an extra session of the legislature to take into consideration the condition of public affairs consequent on the excitement produced by the election of sectional candidates for president and vice president. That body met January 7, 1861. The doctrine of non-coercion, South Carolina secession, and the Fort Sumter affair had become everyday topics. On federal affairs, Governor Letcher's message was a medley of heterogeneous and contradictory arguments and recommendations. He declared a disruption of the Union inevitable. He desired a national convention. He thought that four republics might be formed. He scolded South Carolina for her precipitate action. He joined a correct and a false quotation of Lincoln's sentiments. He opposed a state convention. He recommended sending commissioners to other slave states. He proposed terms to the North and thought they would be freely, cheerfully, and promptly assented to. 
He said, let the New England states and western New York be sloughed off. He wanted railroads to Kansas and direct trade to Europe. And finally, he summed up, events crowd upon each other with astonishing rapidity. The scenes of today are dissolved by the developments of tomorrow. The opinions now entertained may be totally revolutionized by unforeseen and unanticipated occurrences that an hour or a day may bring forth. The truth was that in Governor Letcher's hand, the old dominion was adrift towards rebellion without rudder or compass. His quarrel with South Carolina turned upon an important point. The irascible Palmetto State was offended that Virginia had a year before rejected her proposal for a Southern conference. In retaliation, she now intimated that she would help to destroy Virginia's slave market. The introduction of slaves from other states, said her governor, which may not become members of the Southern Confederacy, and particularly the border states, should be prohibited by legislative enactment, and by this means they will be brought to see that their safety depends upon a withdrawal from their enemies and a union with their friends and natural allies. Mississippi made a similar threat. As it is more than probable, said her executive, that many of the citizens of the border states may seek a market for their slaves in the cotton states, I recommend the passage of an act prohibiting the introduction of slaves into this state unless their owners come with them and become citizens, and prohibiting the introduction of slaves for sale by all persons whomsoever. Governor Letcher grew very indignant over these declarations. These references to the border states that he are pregnant with meaning, and no one can be at a loss to understand what that meaning is. While disavowing any unkind feeling towards South Carolina and Mississippi, I must still say that I will resist the coercion of Virginia into the adoption of a line of policy whenever the attempt is made by northern or southern states. Incensed against the north and distrustful of the south, the governor pushed forward his military preparations. Especially did he cast a longing eye at Fort Monroe. As far back as January 8, 1861, says he, I consulted with a gentleman whose position enabled him to know the strength of that fortress, and whose experience in military matters enabled him to form an opinion as to the number of men that would be required to capture it. He represented it to be one of the strongest fortifications in the world, and expressed his doubts whether it could be taken unless assailed by water as well as by land and simultaneously. Since Governor Letcher had neither a fleet nor a properly equipped army, he did not follow up this design. The discussion of the project, however, illustrates the condition of his allegiance to the flag of his country and the constitution he was then under oath to uphold. Like the governor, the legislature at once put itself in an attitude of quasi-rebellion by resolving on the second day of the session that it would resist any attempt of the federal government to coerce a seceding state. It soon passed an act to assemble a convention and by a large appropriation for defense, already mentioned, by issuing treasury notes, by amending the militia laws, and by authorizing counties to borrow money to purchase arms, and especially by its debates, further increased the prevailing secession undertow during the whole of its extra session from January 7 to April 4. The election for a convention was held February 4 and provoked a stirring contest. Its result was apparently for union. The union members claimed a majority of three to one, 
But this was evidently an exaggerated estimate. The precise result could not be well defined. Politics had become a babel. Discussion was a mere confusion of tongues. Party organization was swallowed up in intrigue and conspiracy, not constitutional majorities, became the basis and impulse of legislation. The Virginia Convention met February 13, and its proceedings reflect a maze of loose declamation and purposeless resolves. It had no fixed mind and could therefore form no permanent conclusion. The prevailing idea of the majority seemed to be expressed in a single phrase of one of its members that he would neither be driven by the North nor dragged by the cotton states. It was virtually a mere committee of observation waiting the turn of political winds and tides. It gave two encouraging though negative signs of promise. The first, that it had undoubtedly been chosen by a majority of voters really attached to the Union and desiring to remain in it. The second, that during a session of well nigh a month, it had not as yet passed an ordinance of secession, which had so far been a quick result in other state conventions. As said at the beginning of this chapter, the course of the border states, and especially of Virginia, was on all hands the subject of chief solicitude. Her cooperation was absolutely essential to the secession government at Montgomery. This point, though not proclaimed, was understood by Jefferson Davis, and to powerful intrigues from that quarter, many otherwise unaccountable movements may doubtless be ascribed. Neither was her adherence to the Union undervalued by Lincoln. Seward was deeply impressed both with the necessity and the possibility of saving her from secession as a brand from the burning. He relied, too confidently as the event proved, on the significance of the late popular vote. He sent an agent to Richmond who brought him hopeful news. He had already proposed to strengthen the hands of the Virginia Unionists by advising Lincoln to nominate George W. Summers to fill the existing vacancy on the bench of the United States Supreme Court. Under his promptings, perhaps Lincoln now thought it possible to bring his personal influence to bear on the Virginia Convention. He authorized Seward to invite Summers, or some equally influential and determined Union leader, to come to Washington. It is not likely that he had any great faith in such an effort, for the refusal or neglect of Scott, Gilmer, and Hunt to accept a cabinet appointment offered to each of them with more or less distinctness had proved that Southern Unionism of this type was mere lip service and not a living principle. It so turned out in this instance. Summers, pleading important business in the convention, excused himself from coming. It would appear, however, that he and others selected one John B. Baldwin as a proper representative who came to Washington and had an interview with the president on the morning of April 4, 1861. There is a direct conflict of evidence as to what occurred at this interview. The witnesses are Mr. Baldwin himself and John Minor Botts, both of whom gave their testimony under oath before the Reconstruction Committee of Congress in 1866 after the close of the war. Mr. Botts testifies that on the 7th of April he called upon the President, who related to him in confidence that a week or ten days previously he had written to Summers to come to Washington and he, instead of obeying the summons, had after that long delay sent Baldwin. On Baldwin's arrival on the 5th of April, as Botts relates the story, Lincoln took him into a private room in the executive mansion and said to him, in substance, 
Mr. Baldwin, why did you not come here sooner? I have been waiting and expecting some of you gentlemen of that convention to come to me for more than a week past. I had a most important proposition to make to you, but I am afraid you have come too late. However, I will make the proposition now. We have in Fort Sumter with Major Anderson about 80 men. Their provisions are nearly exhausted. I have not only written to Governor Pickens, but I have sent a special messenger to say to him that I will not permit these people to starve, that I shall send them provisions. If he fires on that vessel, he will fire upon an unarmed vessel loaded with bread. But I shall at the same time send a fleet along with her with instructions not to enter the harbor of Charleston unless that vessel is fired into, and if she is, then the fleet is to enter the harbor and protect her. Now, Mr. Baldwin, that fleet is now lying in the harbor of New York, and will be ready to sail this afternoon at five o'clock. And although I fear it is almost too late, yet I will submit the proposition which I intended when I sent for Mr. Summers. Your convention in Richmond has been sitting now nearly two months, and all that they have done has been to shake the rod over my head. You have recently taken a vote in the Virginia Convention on the right of secession, which was rejected by 90 to 45, a majority of two-thirds, showing the strength of the Union Party in that convention. If you will go back to Richmond and get that Union majority to adjourn and go home without passing the ordinance of secession, so anxious am I for the preservation of the peace of this country and to save Virginia and the other border states from going out, that I will take the responsibility of evacuating Fort Sumter and take the chance of negotiating with the cotton states. Mr. Botts here asked how Baldwin received that proposition. Sir, replied Lincoln with a gesture of impatience, he would not listen to it for a moment. He hardly treated me with civility. He asked me what I meant by an adjournment. Did I mean an adjournment sine die? Why, of course, Mr. Baldwin, said I, I mean an adjournment sine die. I do not mean to assume such a responsibility as that of surrendering that fort to the people of Charleston upon your adjournment, and then for you to return in a week or ten days and pass your ordinance of secession. Mr. Botts relates that he asked permission of the President to go himself and submit that proposition to the Union members of the convention, but that Lincoln replied it was too late. The fleet had sailed. Further, that Baldwin returned to Richmond without even disclosing the President's offer, and that he eventually became an active secessionist and held a commission in the rebel army. On the material point, Baldwin's testimony is directly to the contrary. He states that Seward's messenger reached Richmond April 3, that at the request of Summers, he immediately returned with him to Washington and called on the president on the morning of April 4, that Lincoln took him into a private room and said in substance, I'm afraid you have come too late. I wish you could have been here three or four days ago. Why do you not adjourn the Virginia Convention? Adjourn it how? asked Baldwin. Do you mean sine die? Yes, said Lincoln, sine die. Why do you not adjourn it? It is a standing menace to me, which embarrasses me very much. Baldwin then relates how he made a grandiloquent speech to the president about the balance of power, the safeguards of the Constitution, and the self-respect of the convention, that the union members had a clear majority of nearly three to one. They were controlling it for conservative results and desired to have their hands upheld by a conciliatory policy that if he had the control of the president's thumb and finger for five minutes, he could settle the whole question. 
He would issue a proclamation, call a national convention, and withdraw the forces from Sumter and Pickens. But Mr. Baldwin declares and reiterates that he received from Mr. Lincoln no pledge, no undertaking, no offer, no promise of any sort. I am as clear in my recollections, he says, as it is possible to be under the circumstances, that he made no such suggestion as I understood it, and said nothing from which I could infer it. A careful analysis and comparison with established data show many discrepancies and errors in the testimony of both of these witnesses. Making due allowances for the ordinary defects of memory, and especially for the strong personal and political bias and prejudice under which they both receive their impressions, the truth probably lies midway between their extreme contradictory statements. The actual occurrence may therefore be summed up about as follows. Mr. Seward had an abiding faith in the unionism and latent loyalty of Virginia and the border states. He wished by conciliation to reawaken and build them up, and thereby not merely retain these states, but make them the instruments and this feeling the agency to undermine rebellion and finally reclaim the cotton states. Lincoln did not fully share this optimism. Nevertheless, he desired to avoid actual conflict and was willing to make any experimental concession which would not involve the actual loss or abandonment of military or political advantage. The acts of the previous administration had placed Fort Sumter in a peril from which, so the military authorities declared, he could not extricate it. His cabinet advised its evacuation. Public opinion would justify him in sacrificing the fort to save the garrison. He had ordered Fort Pickens reinforced. He was daily awaiting news of the execution of his announced policy to hold, occupy, and possess the government posts. Pickens, once triumphantly secured, the loss of Sumter could be borne. But might not the loss of Sumter be compensated? Might he not utilize that severe necessity and make it the lever to procure the adjournment of the Virginia Convention, which, to use his own figure, was daily shaking the rod over his head? This, we may assume, was his reasoning and purpose when, about March 20, either directly or through Seward, he invited Summers, the acknowledged leader of the Union members of the Convention, to Washington. Summers, however, hesitated delayed and finally refused to come the anxiously looked for news of the reinforcement of fort pickens did not arrive the cabinet once more voted and changed its advice the president ordered the preparation of the sumter expedition a second expedition to fort pickens had begun another perplexing complication to be described in the next chapter had occurred at this juncture baldwin made his appearance but clearly he had come too late by this time, April 4, 1861, his presence was an embarrassment and not a relief. Fully to inform him of the situation was hazardous, impossible. To send him back without explanation was impolite and would give alarm at Richmond. Lincoln, therefore, opened conversation with him, manifesting sufficient personal trust to explain what he intended to have told Summers. This called forth Baldwin's dogmatic and dictatorial rejounder, from which Lincoln discovered two things— first that baldwin was only an embryo secessionist and second that the virginia convention was little else than a council of rebellion hence the abrupt termination of the interview and the unexplained silence at richmond end of chapter twenty five